Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. I was an assistant U.S. attorney, and people would come by and say, oh, we just got this trial. It's going tomorrow. Will you take it? No, I can't do that. I won't do a great job. And I never said, and neither will anyone else. So this is an opportunity, and you'll do it as well as anyone else, so take it. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Lorna Schofield, United States District Judge for the Southern District of New York. I'm happy to welcome Judge Schofield to the podcast to discuss mentoring primarily, although I have a feeling we're going to be pretty far ranging. So I'm happy to have you here. Hello, glad to be here. Because this podcast is oriented around women, I always start with this question. What was your experience as a law student and as a young lawyer? As a law student, which was many, many, many years ago, my class at NYU consisted of 40% women, and that seemed very natural to me. I didn't really know any better, and I didn't notice, perceive, or experience gender bias, even though women's issues had always been something of interest to me since I'd been in high school. So I had a terrific experience in law school from that point of view as well as others. As a young lawyer, you said you were always interested in this business of being a woman and gender bias. It continues to pervade your interests, I know. I'll start out by saying I worked at wonderful places, but there are always a few anecdotes. I do remember when I was a summer associate and someone a partner asked me for a book on a particular subject, and I brought it down to him, and he said, my, what's a little girl like you doing with such a big book like that? (laughs) And I thought, you asked for the book, uh, and what is all this anyway? Um, But anyway. Was it the size of the book or the topic of the book? It was the size. Hmm. But in any event, the legal profession has changed profoundly since I was a young associate uh, for the better for women. Uh, And it's a wonderful thing to have seen. I haven't been in the practice of law in four or five years, but I know there are still challenges. Come on, Judge. Being a judge (laughs) is the practice of law. Well, not in the same way. (laughs) I I have my own small world here. You have to learn case law every day in a different way. But it's a different environment, a different world. I'm not in a big institution dealing with the kinds of issues that you're talking about. Exactly. Well, being a woman has impacted your experience. Um, It sounds like, I, I mean, I just think, what about on the bench? Everyone's nice to the judge. So I don't... uh, I don't think I have ever perceived anything that felt patronizing, demeaning, sexist, or anything like that as a judge on the bench. People are very well behaved towards judges. That's one of the, I'm speaking a little tongue in cheek, but it's one of the wonderful things about this job coming from being a lawyer Mm -hmm. and a litigator where, you know, the adversarial system means that by definition you're fighting with someone all the time. Being a judge is much different and very pleasant. You get to be above the fray. That's right. In a word. You're the first Filipino-American in U.S. history to be appointed as an Article Three federal judge. Talk a little bit about the confluence of, I hate to say, 
the confluence of race and gender, especially as I'm sitting here as a middle-aged white woman, I always feel jumpy about talking about race sitting here in this pale skin. But talk a little bit about that confluence, because that certainly has influenced your life. Um, It has, but in some ways I felt being a woman much more profoundly than being Asian American or mixed race. And I don't know why exactly that is. I'm reminded of a story when I became uh, a partner at the law firm where I was for many years and a wonderful law firm. Um, One of my partners congratulated me and I said, you should be happy you have now another minority partner. And he said, really, who's that? And I I think it's uh, that a lot of people didn't perceive me as Filipino American or Asian or brown skinned or any of those things. Hmm. Maybe it's because I grew up in Indiana. A Hoosier made you invisible as far as being a minority. Maybe. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to the bench? I could talk for hours, but I don't want to, you know, bore you or belabor anything. <laughs> I, uh, I went to, uh, I went, to, well, I'll go back to high school and just tell you a little anecdote. I was on the debate team, and everybody on the debate team wanted to be a lawyer. Of course. And so we all decided we would all be lawyers, and we would all move to the big city, which was Chicago, and we would all join together in a big law firm and be lawyers together. And funny, many of those people are now lawyers, and I'm still in touch with some of them. So I, I always had in the back of my mind that I would be a lawyer, but I had many, many, many other interests. And I uh, almost went the way of academia, decided I needed a, uh, a more sort of stable life than, than that at the time, especially in liberal arts. It was very hard for academics to find jobs and tenured positions. So in any event, I decided to go to law school, went to NYU, moved to New York. You know, that was the beginning of the story. I've been here in New York ever since. I had a great time in law school. Hang on a second. None of those were casual decisions. You said you decided to do all this stuff. Somewhere along the line. How long do you want to talk? (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere along the line, there were some pretty big influential litmus tests. Yes, yes, that's true. So when I was in college, my mother died when I was in my last year of college. Mm, Um, And so I knew I had to support myself. Mm. And so I couldn't, I was in a comparative literature PhD program, master's PhD program, and it was, and I'm not a, I am a native English speaker. I don't speak any other languages as a native speaker, Uh, and it's an especially hard field if your other languages aren't native languages, Um, and I was studying French, German, and English literature, and it was taking people on average about seven, eight years to get through the program, and then they were finding it was very difficult to find jobs because, uh, you know, when I was there, they were looking for a spot for someone who could, and I'm making this up, I don't remember, but who could do, you know, 20th century women's studies and 18th century French plus a little Greek literature. You know, you just had to have sort of the magic right combination in addition to being good and accomplished at what you did. And it just seemed there was so much luck involved. uh, And I just didn't have the luxury of 
saying, oh, well, I'll just hang out in school and then look around and see what happens. And I had actually taken the LSATs at the same time I took the GREs to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't an out-of-the-blue decision. It was something I had always been thinking about. And after a year of grad school, which I enjoyed, I decided I need to, I need to try to go to law school. So law school was actually a really practical kind of decision. It was. There are kids who grow up saying, you know, I love the law, I want to be a judge, I want to be a lawyer. You know, I loved Perry Mason on television, but I was not one of those kids. Um, I loved to debate, I loved theater, I, you know, there were, I had many interests. Mm-hmm. But other than that, when it came down to brass tacks, you didn't have the esoterica that fit that PhD magic. Well, the problem was it could change fortuitously for mm-hmm. any job, and who knows whether I would be the right person at the right time. It was just a lot of luck. Sometimes we call this planned serendipity. Right. That you right. ended up in just the right place at the right time. And it turned out that it sounds like you love the law, and you ended up loving your life as a lawyer. You know, I, uh, I feel very blessed. I have, you know, I've really um, enjoyed being a lawyer, and I, uh, and I love being a judge. Being a lawyer was... I try to explain this to young people because, you know, life in a big firm, there's a trade-off. Um, you work hard. I, you know, I had a family, and, you know, the whole balancing act is a challenge then and still. But in my estimation, it was worth it. It, you know, the work was exciting. It was interesting. It took me into worlds that I would not have seen otherwise into boardrooms of big companies, into places where I felt you needed some special ticket to have an entree, and somehow I had it. And so it was great. But, you know, it's hard work, and it is, it's a service business. That's what, you know, being a lawyer and having clients means. And so, you know, after, I guess, I hate to say it, 30 years, <laughs> I decided I was, you know, a little bit weary and had enough of, you know, four in the morning and traveling on a moment's notice and being away from home and in a hotel longer than I had planned and, you know, buying underwear and a toothbrush at the corner store and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I started thinking about what I would do. And I actually retired for a year and I think would have stayed retired if this opportunity hadn't worked out. But this is, you know, I figured too fabulous a job not to try. And it, it is an amazing job. It's sort of, I think it's the best job a lawyer can have, except maybe being an academic. I'm not sure I'm cut out to be an academic, but I have close friends who are academics. And, you know, they can think about whatever they want. I mean, that's the ultimate freedom, the intellectual freedom. <laughs> right. Well, as a judge, you, you're shaped a little bit more by what comes across the docket. That's right. But I can decide whatever I want. <laughs> there you go. So from your retirement, someone's hand reached into your life. Well, I actually had looked uh, before I retired and uh, had applied to Senator Schumer's Judicial Committee and uh, had gotten through the committee quickly, met with the senator, and then just didn't hear for a long time. So I was convinced it wasn't going to happen. And I talked to a friend of mine, again, not mentioning any names, and he, he said it took him f- 15 years to hear wow. back. Mine was long, but not that long. So it was a couple of years before everything fell into place because I first applied in 
2010, um, and I had my Senate hearing in the summer of 2012, and then I had my full Senate vote after the election. I would not have had a Senate vote at all, but for Obama being reelected. So there you have it. There's luck in everything. There really does sound to be some fortunate twists yes. in this life of yours. There's a part of me that feels a little empathy or sympathy maybe because my own mother died at a certain point when I was young and it sounds like just temperamentally you to go from comparative literature to the law I'm surrounded by lawyers and have been for the last couple of decades temperamentally there is something that I don't want to say that you had to give up um, by going into the law but I know what it means to be surrounded by lawyers and we do this, this MBTI at the law school now, this personality assessment, a temperament assessment, if you will. And it really is just a, a way for young lawyers to have insight into their own way of being so that they have an awareness also in, in the diversity. I guess it's an awareness of others as well. So they have more self-awareness and they have awareness of others. And I've noticed that there is a certain way of being that lawyers have. Just generally, there's a most frequently occurring temperament type. And you may not be that most frequently occurring temperament type, if you, especially if you come out of comparative literature, let's just say. So what did you give up when you became a lawyer? You know, I'm not sure because I'm not sure what your lawyer type is. But I'll tell you another anecdote, and maybe that will explain the answer. When I first got to law school, what struck me the most about the difference between law school and literature, there were two things. One is the law had its own vocabulary, and mm -hmm. it was very clear that once you got the lingo down, then you, know, you were way ahead. But the other is that thinking was very linear. You know, when you're studying literature and when you're studying poetry, it's multi-layered, uh, and it's not linear. And I felt that I had to force myself to think in a more linear way. And I used to do creative writing in those days and discovered at some point, I don't know whether it was in law school or after a few years of being a lawyer, I couldn't do it anymore because mm -hmm. I had become a lawyer. I mean, and now I've been a lawyer for so long. I mean, that's, it's who I am. It shapes you know, what you do shapes who you are, regardless of what it is. Absolutely. And, and that's just as true of, of me as anyone. So if I asked you to write a poem, it would be hard for you? I would make you a list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes all kinds of sense to me. Okay. <laughs> as a list maker, I can understand okay, that. good. I know that mentoring is hugely important to you. Um, you've talked about how your mom was a, you're an early mentor, and there's many ways to define mentoring. First of all, how would you define mentoring? It's a kind of a sexy, juicy, hip word. We hear it all the time now. So I guess I would start with that. How would you define it in the first place? I think at its most basic level, a mentor um, is a a leader or someone who brings you along. Mm -hmm. But there are many ways to do that. That's why we can add your mom to the list of your mentors. That, that's right. But if there's one thing I would like to express and that I think people need to know about mentoring is that there are many different kinds of mentors. Mm -hmm. And you find them in different places and they serve different functions. 
and uh, people often think of mentors as being someone who's like they are only more senior. And that's great because those kinds of people have been through the same challenges typically and, and can give you insight into what's happening and how to deal with those problems. But those people alone will not you know, fill the whole spectrum of your mentoring needs. And you also need someone called, I mean, I think it's been called a sponsor, mm -hmm. but someone who is powerful in your organization, who will be an advocate for you uh, to get good work, uh, to have prominence, to get praise when praise is deserved. And people who are successful in organizations have mentors of at least both kinds. There may be others as well, but both, I think, are, are critically important. They say those sponsors actually help us to amplify our impact. That, that is wonderfully succinct, but yes. Mm-hmm. Mentoring is no longer considered to be actually one-sided. Uh, Kathy Cram, uh, who wrote Mentor at Work, she describes mentorship in its new form as more of a developmental network, meaning that more than one person is in your network. That means that more than one person can be seen as a source for advisement. When do you first imagine being mentored? When was I first mentored? Maybe high school, mm -hmm. high school teachers. You talked about being uh, on the debate team. Was that one of your first experiences being mentored? On the debate team, but also my literature professor. Really? That makes sense, since that was part of your early identity. Right. And mentorship has obviously been a huge source of value for you. Oh, absolutely. I don't, no one can be successful without having mentors. But also, it's a wonderfully rewarding thing to do when you're a more senior lawyer, more senior professional, mentor other people. I mean, I have uh, law clerks now who I mentor, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And you get satisfaction out of mentoring them. Yes. So you learn from them too. I learn from them, and also I feel I have some vicarious pleasure in their successes, and it feels good to be connected to young people having young people problems when you're an older person and you've kind of been through all that. Well, that kind of ties into something, a conversation that we've had earlier, which is that women often tend to disappear when they've had good grades or they've been successful, they think, oh, you know, my success doesn't matter, and they just disappear. Or they've been less than successful, maybe a B minus in a torts class, and they go away, um, and they don't bother knocking on the door to figure out what they can do to be better or to do better on the next test, let's just say. I love it that you say that you get a vicarious thrill out of being a mentor because that maybe encourages young women to seek out a mentor, because it is a two-way street. There is something gratifying about uh, being a mentor. There is something nice. I always say that little thrill that I get on the street when somebody says, can you tell me which way to the A train? There's a little happy buzz when I actually know the way to the A train that I get. And so that buzz magnified is that buzz of mentorship. If I can sit with somebody for 20 minutes and say, okay, let's sort this out. That is the buzz of mentorship, right? Absolutely. So what can we do to encourage young women to seek out mentors? I'm always a fan of the direct approach. I think we have to tell them they need to do that. 
that it's essential for their professional development and professional success, that it's not optional, and that, and that they need to do it. Don't disappear. Absolutely. I mean, even clerks who leave as well as interns, I say one of the most valuable things you get out of this experience is your relationship with me and your other clerks. And don't just lose that. Stay in touch and keep those relationships up. Because in three years, when you have a question about something, you know, if I've heard from you, if, the, if your co-clerks or if the law clerks when you're an intern have heard from you, it's so easy to just email someone and ask the question. So I just, I tell them. And some do. Some don't. I don't know why... I don't like the idea of a stereotype. I think generalizations are hokey because very often we tend to defy our stereotypes. But there is something about about us as women um, that we think we should go it alone. Or we don't realize that nobody else is. I think sometimes people just don't realize. They don't know any better. And I don't and I don't know why. Why? How do men get taught that and women don't sometimes? I mean, even my own daughter, when she was young, I hope she'll forgive me for talking about her. She's almost 30 now. But when she was looking for a job, for example, she wouldn't let me ask my friends if they knew of anything in an area that she was interested in because she wanted to prove that she could do it on her own and it somehow undermined her value in her eyes if I had anything to do with it. And at some point she realized that everybody else was using every advantage they could find to find opportunities. And I think there are a lot of people who just it takes them a while to realize that everyone else is doing it. So if there's any singular piece of advice that you'd like to impart or really drive home for our listeners about this business of building a developmental network, it would just be, you're not alone. You're not alone. You have to do it. You have to ask for it. Even asking someone directly if they'll be your mentor or if they would mind mentoring you with respect to a particular subject um, is important. It's also, I mean, there are rules that go along with it. You have to be respectful of your mentor's time and schedule. So uh, you can say, could I have 20 minutes of your time to talk about X and then make sure you stick to the 20 minutes? Or could we have coffee to talk about Y? Uh, And then, you know, you need to stick to the schedule. Um, And the other thing the mentor expects back, and it's this buzz you were talking about, is the mentor expects to hear back. So if I advise you about how to approach an interview, Mm -hmm. I want to hear how it went. It's like hearing the end of a story. So, you know, part of the obligation of being a mentee is, you know, reporting back, finishing the story. Allow a relationship to develop. Right. So I want to know if you made it to the subway. Right, exactly. exactly. (laughs) I want to know that it actually happened. So there's a notion that it can be something as silly as how to respond to a question or what to wear to an interview. It can be, it doesn't matter um, what what the issue is, but there actually should be an X or a Y at stake. Yes. In that 20 minutes. Absolutely. You need an agenda. Sometimes I've had students come and say, I want to know how you got to be vice dean, for instance. And I think, oh, honey, 
you can't follow that path. That path is really, like you said, you know, you grew up and you're a Hoosier and you happen to be Filipino American. You are not going to be able to follow my direct path. I happen to have a very convoluted path and I can't, I can't prescribe that particular path. So I like it when they have a particular question, right. an X or a Y. Is that the case for you? You would like a, a specific question at play? Absolutely. Um, because that's how to be most helpful. I think that's what you're saying, too. Mm-hmm. You know, even if somebody says, you know, if I want to do X, what do I need? What skills do I need to develop or what relationships or what do I need to do? And I will often say, that's too far in the future. Let's talk five years. What's the five-year plan or what's the three-year plan? Let's talk about how you do that. But Narrow yes, it down. Yes, you need something concrete and manageable. Mm-hmm. That's the lawyer in you, yep. I have to say, Judge. I always like to end these discussions with, with a couple of questions. What advice would you give yourself when you were in law school? If you looked back, it's a little time travel question. Be brave. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I think I was more brave, more outspoken than many people, but still timid. You know, for example, uh, I think I was an assistant U.S. attorney when I was a young lawyer. And people would come by and say, oh, we just got this trial. It's going tomorrow. Will you take it? And I would think, no, I can't do that. I won't do a great job. And, it, and I never said, and neither will anyone else. So this is an opportunity, and you'll do it as well as anyone else. So take it. But I would always be intimidated by not being able to do well or not being able to do my best job. And I wish that as a younger person, I had been more brave about those things. I think that's really good advice, particularly, I hate to say it, for women. When I look out at the sea of hands waving, they're very rarely the women's hands. And I hate to say it, the people who took those trials that were going tomorrow were usually men. So again, a time travel question. What would your younger self think of you now? I think she might be shocked. Who who is this and how did you get there? (laughs) You know, it's the fortuitous what we talked about. It was not the grand plan by any means. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel so blessed and so lucky. But, you know, even now I sometimes say, wow, how did this happen? What would your mom think? Oh, she'd be so happy and proud. She used to say, I remember when she said, you know, you like to talk. I think you should be Barbara Walters. Mm. And I said, Mom, you don't just apply to be Barbara Walters. (laughs) Um, But she had this idea that I could just, you know, send in my application somehow and and be a Barbara Walters type person. So she would be thrilled. Well, I have to tell you, channeling your mom, I'm thrilled. (laughs) Well, thank thank you. you. And thank you for doing this. My pleasure. You hit just the right notes. Happy to do it. And I... Would love to see more NYU students in my chambers. Well, I happen to know that you have a a clerkship open, so you may just be doing some of that. I hope so. Okay. Thank you so much, Judge. Thank you. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership.com.